0: As you're turning in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 8 and read through verse 13. There are a couple of things I want to remind you of. If, uh, if the women of our church and women who are here with us today, if you've not picked up your gift for Mother's Day, it's available in the foyer as you go out today, so make sure you get it if you've not already gotten that gift and uh we are able we 're glad to be able to do this. Thank Corinne Eberly and her team for providing that by the way wasn't that a marvelous video at the beginning didn 't you like that? That was so encouraging. Give Corinne a hand for doing that. She put all of that together and uh I had uh, Uh, I didn't know exactly when we were going to schedule that. And, uh, I just had the impression late yesterday afternoon that we needed to do that at the very beginning of the service. So I'm grateful for all the people up in the booth and Jean and others who were, uh, understanding about flip flipping a lot of things at the beginning of the service. And I'm glad we did it so you could see that. So pick up your gifts. And, uh, those of you, um, who uh, were wanting a copy of The Moon is Always Round. Uh, I got swamped last Sunday after church with people who wanted that book, and I had two copies. So uh, there are a dozen more copies coming. So they will be... I hope they would be here by yesterday. They didn't make it, so you will have them. At least a dozen of you will. So um, the... Um, Uh, You can uh, let me know if you, I know some of you who want one because you were standing all around me yesterday, last Sunday. And uh, it's a wonderful book, so I hope you'll get it. We'll have them here next week. Philippians chapter 4, stand if you're able. Let's honor God in the reading of his word. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, teach us today what we do not know and need to know, but do more than teach us. Come in the presence and power of your spirit among us now and move in our hearts so that we might learn how to live with contentment. We live in a culture that is very confused and very caught up in so many things that do not matter at all. And in the midst of this kind of culture, we are called to live as your people. And to live as your people is to live in and with and by contentment. And we do not have to be puzzled about where to find it. Because you make it visible to us in your holy inerrant word. So illumine our minds and hearts that we might receive the wonderful gift of the life-changing truth of your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There is no doubt at all in the Bible that the one who brought the church into being, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls his church to unity. Now that means that one of the clear and evident marks of a true church is that the membership of that church will pursue with a passion unity In relationship to God through Jesus Christ brought to us by the power of his spirit under the authority of his inerrant word. You and I have no ability at all, zero ability to bring unity to the church. We simply cannot do it. And we cannot do it because it's not our work to do. It is the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God under the Lordship of Jesus to bring the church into the place of unity. The unity for which Jesus prays and the unity that Jesus proclaims is the kind of unity, the only kind of unity to which the Lord Jesus is committed It is a unity that he has with God the Father in the presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit that he breathes into the body of Christ, the local church. It is a relational unity. It's a unity that we have with God through Jesus Christ because we've been born again through the Spirit of God. If you're among us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, we're delighted that you're here. And we pray that today in this place, you would hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God has come in Jesus Christ to save you, that he's come to rescue you from ruin, that he's come to deliver you from your rebellion against God. He's come to bring you his peace and his joy in your life. And when you're honest before God as an unbeliever, you don't have that peace with God and you know it. You don't have that joy and you know it. You don't have that sense of contentment in you and you know it and something in you is longing for it. And it can be yours today through the surrender of your life to the Lordship of Jesus. You become not only one who is joined together with Jesus as Lord, you become a part of a local church. We would love you have to be, we would love to have you be a part of this local church. And in that local church, out of your relationship with Jesus, you are pursuing unity with other believers because it is what Jesus prayed for and what Jesus produces. It is the only kind of unity that exists. Paul comes to the end of Philippians, and he's deeply concerned about the unity of the church. He's laid down a very solid theological foundation before we get to chapter 4, verse 1, and then he confronts the issue of unity. There are two women in the church that are disturbing the fellowship of the church. and They want their own way, and both of them are absolutely confident that God is on their side. And they're after what they desire. And Paul, Paul speaks to them. And in speaking to them, he speaks to the larger church in Philippi. And in speaking to the larger church in Philippi, because we're reading and reflecting on this text both last Sunday and today, he is speaking to us. He speaks directly to these women. He calls them by name. The situation is so serious, the crisis so real, that he cannot afford to speak to it as if there is no person attached to the issue. So he, he calls them first to a genuine community, to a real relationship with God, which includes repentance and remorse for our sins, where... We say to God, we have sinned against you and we've sinned against others. Please forgive us. We would rather lose our rights than to offend the body of Christ in such a way that we may get our way and we may lose the way of Jesus in the larger church. If there's going to be unity, there must be a genuine community. And for there to be a genuine community of believers... There must be what is so absent in many of our congregations. There must be honesty before God. There must be honesty with one another. And there must be transparency. Some of you are sitting here this morning going through things in your life that nobody else knows about but you and your closest family members. And nobody that is a brother or sister in this body really knows. Often in local church after local church, we live in relationship with one another in ways that are not honest, in ways that are surely not transparent. We must be honest and transparent about biblical fidelity. We have to be a church if we're going to be a church at all that's faithful to the word of God living under the authority of the word of God. And when there is in the church those who move away from the authority of the word of God and refuse to submit to its authority that distresses the unity of the church. We must be people of theological integrity. We must believe what the Bible says, and we must base our lives fully and faithfully on what the Bible says. Many of you got a bulletin this morning, and as we, as you opened the bulletin, I hope you read my reflection on Psalm 139. Let me tell you about, about how God works in ways that often blow my mind. Psalm 139 was selected for this Sunday months ago. So we're reading the psalm on the Sunday after the leak of the Supreme Court draft that most likely is going to lead to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So Psalm 139, which is clearly at its heart a psalm That makes very plain, every believer in this room, you should have no doubt about when life begins. When a child is conceived in the womb, it is not a fetus, a zygote, it is a human being. And from the start, it is either a little boy or a little girl. We should have no confusion about that at all. And to be theologically faithful and biblically sound, we are pro-life because we are pro-God and we stand on the authority of the Word of God. And out of that stance, God produces by His Spirit, through the anointing of His Spirit, unity in the fellowship that's not found in ourselves or not found in our relationships. It's found in the authority of the Word of God that brings us together as one, makes us into increasingly a genuine community. That's how Paul begins in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, and then then he turns to point us toward how we are to live with godly contentment. We looked at this last Sunday. I'm just summarizing here. At the beginning, Paul gives us three imperatives. He says to the church, rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Jesus always. Uh, verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness. The word is better translated kindness, courtesy, courtesy, compassion. That's how we relate to one another because God is near us. And then he tells us as Christians, don't be anxious don't worry now this is no akuna matata this is don't worry be happy it's not it this is the kind of trust of god the kind of commitment to god where we rest in the word of god and the will of god and we rejoice no matter our circumstances i didn't get to address this this week so If I can just speak to it briefly, I got to thinking two weeks ago a lot about anxiety. We are are a culture that is consumed with people who are facing anxiety, all kinds of anxiety. We are a worried crowd. And we've even got it now as a diagnosable disorder, complete with panic. And then we face the Word of God, and the Bible says... Just be anxious for a little while. Uh, just be anxious over a few things in your life. No. It says very clearly, disturbingly, clearly do not be anxious about anything. So I got to thinking about as I was reading and reflecting on anxiety, what is anxiety? This is my definition. It's in the notes. It may help you. It may not help you at all. It may not be worth anything except me writing it in the notes, but here it is. Anxiety is the tendency to imagine some situation in our lives or in the lives of others always in worst-case scenarios, becoming increasingly consumed and overwhelmed by those worst-case scenarios, until we reach the place of freaking out about them. That's anxiety. They begin to consume us and control us. We can't think about anything else but that. And it drives our lives. Well, what's the remedy? Listen to what Paul says. He gives us the remedy. He says in everything, verse six of chapter four, by prayer and supplication. He uses four words for prayer here prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, request. He tells us what to pray. He tells us how to pray. We are to pray, which means we are to praise God. We are to pray with supplication, which, we are, which means we are to seek God and trust Him to provide for what we need. We are to make requests made known to God. We are to petition Him for what we need. And we are to do it all with thanksgiving, with gratitude to God, because He's got us in His hands. He's holding us every moment, every minute, every second of every day, and He's not going to let us go. And when we can pray that way, there's no place for anxiety, because there is the presence of the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we're set free. Every believer in this room is set free by the grace of God to pursue a holy life, growing more deeply in love with Jesus every day of your life. Regardless. Regardless of your circumstances, some of you may be in circumstances in your life that in your lifetime may never get better. They may get worse. Some of you are in marriages that are hard. I just want out. God's called you to persevere. Because there are situations in your life that may never change. But you serve a God who is unchanging. And God doesn't bring you into situations just to get you out of those situations. He brings you into them so that you can pursue with passion what it means to follow Him when your whole life is falling apart, knowing that relief is coming. Oh, if we could just get this in our purview. For some of us, relief over in the midst of pain will never come until the day you die and you enter into the presence of God. And then it's eternal joy. Everlasting joy. Forever and ever. It's contentment. It's contentment. How how do we get to the place of Contentment. Paul tells us that we must know where to focus. We must know where to focus. And we must find joy in the fullness of our relationship with God. We must know where to focus. So he tells us. Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The word think here means to meditate. It means to set your mind on, to focus on, to dwell on Paul says, if there's any excellence in these things, excellence is the word for virtue. Now, in the ancient world in which Paul lived, virtue was a big thing. The Greeks and the Romans said the the most important way to live is to live virtuously. And you've got to know what the virtues are and you've got to learn them, you've got to love them, and you've got to live them. The problem is the ancient Greeks and Romans taught that these virtues are located within us from birth because we are born basically good people. We're born with the ability to be whatever we want to be, to think about whatever we want to think about, to do whatever we want to do, that we are virtuous by birth and nature, and we must bring that out so that we can always be the best people we can be. In order for a baby to learn to be virtuous, the Greek and Romans taught that you must put that baby in every right environment you can find. If they're surrounded by the right people doing the right things, they will have a higher probability of becoming virtuous. And you must educate them properly in all the right subjects. So environment and education become, from the pagan Greek and Romans, the key to the virtuous life where you receive through your virtuous life, because you're living the virtuous life, you receive the blessing of the holy gods, plural. Paul doesn't say that here. You look at your outline What Paul says, he uses six words in three pairs. This is not uncommon in Paul's writing. It's found throughout his writings. So Paul says, believer, if you want contentment, focus on truth. The believer asks, where is truth? Jesus answers. In his prayer, in John 17, he prays for us. Those who belong to him, he prays for us. This is what he prays. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. It's the only truth we've got. That is ultimate, eternal, everlasting, unchanging truth. And this truth is pure. It's inerrant, infallible. It has in the book everything that we need for the life that God calls us to live. Paul says, put your mind in the Bible. Open your mind and heart to the Bible. Saturate your life. Soak your life in the Bible. This is the life that brings contentment. Then he shifts to what is honorable. The word has to do with with honesty. It is honorable to be honest. Don't lie about where you are. Don't try to be someone you're not. Not all of you are like me for which you ought to be very thankful to God. Some of you can handle being on social media. I can't. I've been off social media for three months. In our kind of world, you know what you feel like when you're off social media? You never know what's going on anywhere with anybody. And I want to tell you something some days that's a wonderful thing. I find it toxic to my soul. And being off it, I found a freedom. And a delight that I had not known for a season because I was so saturated with that stuff. You ought to think about that. Because social media can influence you in such a way, particularly young people, that people on social media are speaking the truth about themselves. Can I let you in on a little secret? Most of them aren't. They're projecting an image that they want you to see about who they are. That isn't true, really, because they're going through all kinds of stuff just like you are. We need to learn how to be honest. Take the mask off and be honest. Because Paul says, this is lovely. It's lovely. It's it's attractive. This is who we are to be. Paul says we are to think about things that are just and right. What is just and right is not defined by our culture, it's defined by the Word of God. It's defined really by the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments, what the Ten Commandments teach us, and let them govern your life and guide your life because this is commendable. The word commendable means literally to be pleasing to God. You want contentment? Set your mind on these things. Set your mind on the Word of God. The Word of God will help you do what is honorable and honest. The Word of God will enable you to see and to do what is just and right. And it is pure, it is lovely, and it is pleasing to God. Well, how do you get there? Paul tells us. We not have to do more than think about these things. What you have learned... And what you have received and what you've heard and what you've seen in me, you get there by hearing the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. We hear the word, we do the word, we receive the word, believe the word, make the word the basis of our lives. And the promise of God is that the God of peace will be with you. This way of living doesn't depend on our circumstances. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived. The word for revived is used of a seed that was sown in the ground and hadn't produced anything for years and then all of a sudden you see something sprouting that you would not seen in a number of years. You revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's life is not shaped by circumstances. Think about where Paul is while he's, where Paul is while he's writing. He's in jail. He's been at sea. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. He's literally been run out of towns for preaching the gospel. But Paul says it doesn't matter. Because I have learned the more we focus our mind on the truth of God, the word of God, the way of God, the more our mind is changed by the spirit of God and we look at our circumstances and situations and wherever we are, we know that God is there. And God will get us through and sustain us in the midst of whatever I've learned in whatever situation to be Content. I know how to be brought low. People persecute me, people make fun of me, people laugh at me, who cares? I know how to abound. I know to have what it is to be blessed with monetary and material abundance, but I am not shaped by that in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, a necessity, food, abundance and need. Contentment. Contentment comes when our hearts are saturated with the Spirit of God because we are under the authority of the Word of God and Our situations and circumstances, even if they never change, we do not change. Our love for God and our loyalty to God, our faithfulness to God, our focus on God, our dependence on God, our devotion to God. Contentment is learned. And it's learned over time. And there's not a single solitary person in this room that will, not, that will get there without God sending you through the deep, dark valley of despair. That's where we learn it. So we come to the second principle that is the last verse in this section. Verse 13. We come to the place where we can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse i believe is the most misinterpreted misunderstood and misapplied verse in the bible where do you hear this verse used the running back burst through the line it's fourth and goal it is 30 seconds left in the game and he burst through the line and enter the end zone. And as he goes across the goal line, he lifts his finger and his team wins the game. Sideline reporter at the end of the game says to him, how did you do that? Well, you know, I, I just have to give, you know, all the glory to God, you know. You know, I, I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you know. Every time I hear that I get sick to my stomach. First thing I think about is that poor defensive line on the other side that probably has Christians on it. So what about those boys? If that is true, if that's, if, if that's what he's saying, let's say he's a running back for some NFL team, and he really believes that, then there are at least two things he's going to say. He's going to say, first of all, I couldn't do anything without my offensive line, so give all the praise humanly to them. It's not about me. I just tote the football. Here's the second thing he should say. You know, I make more money, you know, than any football player ought to make. No, Nobody playing a game ought to be paid a million dollars. Come on. You know what I'm going to do, you know? I'm going to start living on a whole lot less, and I'm going to support church plants all over the world with all that money that I don't need anyway, you know? Now we're talking... Or the politician in a tight race wins the election. Let's say he's running against or she's running against someone who's a Christian, just like this person's a Christian. The election is over and the person says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, this text is not about us. Is not at all about us. Let me translate it literally. I did in the notes at the end. This is what it says literally. In all things, I am strong in the one who enables and empowers me. The focus here is on the one who's in us. The one who lives in us, the one who provides for us, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us life and peace and joy. It's all about Jesus. So that we can face, we can face anything. Because the one who faced sin and death for us and overcame it, is in us, and he is our strength. What if someone came to you today and said, you can have everything in your life that you've got right now, but you have to walk away from Jesus. You can have your home, your car, your clothes, Job. Everything. Or you can have Jesus. And for the rest of your life, you're going to face problems and pain. You're going to deal with difficulties. But Jesus is in you. And he is your everything. Is he your everything? When he is, nothing else matters because in everything you are content. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your contentment given to your children. And I pray that you would help us to think about these things, to think deeply about these things, to think clearly about these things, so that we're able to say, give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. You can have all your world. That is no world at all. With all your stuff that will go. All I want, all I need, all I desire is Jesus. In his name, Amen.